This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all... It's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to the February Room Tributary Short Stories. In this episode, host Justin Carnop reflects his time on the water with his late father and the greatest gift his father ever gave him. Thank you for tuning in. And as always, the best support for our podcast is a like, review, and a share. With all the enthusiasm of a bird dog destined for the groomer, I crawled into the back seat of the Suburban. I loved fishing, albeit for feisty Atlantic salmon at Hosmer Lake or indiscriminate smallmouth on the John Day. But steelheading never seemed to involve the catching of fish. And why did it need to begin at such an unholy hour? I can assume that my inclusion in this outing was strategic, a bargaining chip in a parental negotiation. You could go steelhead fishing, but you have to take Justin with you, my mother likely said. I've come to understand that my dad had other motives. In addition to spending time with me, I'm convinced that he believed that there were valuable life lessons to be learned in the pursuit of challenging fish. It was a three-hour drive, roughly, from the quaint hamlet known as Bend, it's still there but bears no resemblance to my hometown, to the wheat farmer's property along the lower Deschutes. The banter between my dad and his cronies, logically, concerned fishing and hunting, set to the soundtrack of an AM country radio station. The rig went quiet when we left the pavement and navigated a precarious switchback carved long ago by a D8 operator with cojones. 
Atop white-walled bologna skins, the Suburban fit the two-track like a turkey in a bird vest. Barely. The air quotes shoulder of the road allowed a margin of several inches before plummeting off in a bighorn sheep habitat. The landowner would only allow us to drive the Suburban down there once there was ample moisture in the soil. Otherwise, it was diesel rigs only. Buyers on wheat farms are frowned upon. The smell of sagebrush searing against a catalytic converter is a distinct malador stamped onto my olfactory bulb. Piling out of the bourbon, we donned neoprenes and cinched the laces on a wading boot that would never be improved upon, the Borger Ultimate Wading Shoe. Dad would rig me up with a steely on a spinning rod while the rest of the outfit fastened intricately decorated fly patterns such as green butt skunks, freight trains, and Max Canyons to their leaders, which was made out of Maxima, Chameleon. We would spread out along the individually named runs. There was Magic, Bed Springs, and my dad's favorite, simply referred to as the Flywater. Dad would wade up to his mid-chest in the torrent, and I would half-heartedly cast from the bank. My attention span would last for an hour or so before my suspicions were realized. Steelheading was futile, so I swapped the rod for a Bold Action 22 and set off to prowl the Sage Line canyons in pursuit of varmints. From a vantage above the river, I could see my dad and the crew stretched out in their respective runs, like tiny nodules on an emerald snake. At lunchtime, a pastrami and Swiss honor eye had my name all over it, so I abandoned the field. Expecting to find the men hovered around the radio, tuned into the ducks or beavers, we had allegiances in both camps, I was surprised to find the rig vacant. Scanning the river up and down, I spied my dad hunched beneath his cowboy hat alongside his business partner, Jim. Dad was cradling a spectacular fish. The stature rivaled the chrome-sided salmon we would catch in the rolling seas off Newport, but the flanks of this fish were painted with a more variegated palette. Lavender highlights ran the length of the platinum torpedo and rouge cheeks glimmered in the brilliant light reflecting off the river. Here was proof of the existence of a mythical being, and it looked so familiar. Perhaps this fish was within reach of my limited fly fishing skills. After all, a few months prior, I fed renegades into a back eddy boiling with red band rainbows at a place conspicuously called Whiskey Dicks, the haunt of an old moonshiner. Alongside my dad and Jim, I'd learned through osmosis the nuance of counteracting the effect of hydraulics on the drift of my dry fly. By the end of that weekend, I was hooking and landing my own thick-shouldered red sides. As my dad slid the fish back into the easy bankside current, I came to the realization that steelhead were no cockamamie idea manifested by my father to get out of the house. They were a trout just like the many I'd learned to dupe. With practice, I could learn to dupe them too. Reinvigorated, 
I coaxed my dad into rigging up a fly rod for me and proceeded to go fishless the rest of the trip. But I was now determined to catch a steelhead. This ambition stuck with me well into my late teens. Once the fly fishing bug had bitten me so badly that I couldn't keep a girlfriend or commit to a team sport. The river had stripped me of any and all hubris by the time I caught my first steelhead, which arrived awkwardly and by accident while nymph fishing for trout. The experience was not at all what I had envisioned. Like losing virginity in a college dorm room to the satisfaction of no one. But the floodgates were open. Out in the Pacific, steelhead were thriving, and I would spend the next several years squarely planted in steelhead nirvana at the intersection of persistence and luck. So begins my personal soliloquy on the good old days. Let's get through this quickly. In the early 2000s, steelhead were so plentiful in the Columbia Basin that they attracted a new wave of anglers. Those that considered actually catching fish an integral part of the angling experience. I fancied myself a guide now and could frequently take even the greenest of fly rodders to the chutes and have them cradling a steelhead by day's end. We filled smokers and grilled hatchery steelhead for shore lunches. The size of the fish increased too. Rather than the staple one salt fish associated with the chutes basin, steelhead in the double digits became rather common. On one excursion, my fishing partner and I reeled up and vacated a small Columbia tributary after just a day and a half. We had both grown bored of catching steelhead. Steelhead made less sense than ever. Now they were easy to catch. That which I'd come to appreciate as much as the rise of a steelhead to a fly, solitude at dawn and dusk, had become much harder to find than a fish willing to take a fly du jour. With the mystery solved that steelheading was as much a game of chance as skill, they lost their mystique, and I directed my attention to other species, particularly those peering back at me from opaque waters on the pages of magazines. The images captured through the lens of photogs, such as hometown boy Brian O'Keefe, were like a magnet pulling me to tropical skinny water. I hadn't the means to get there, meaning everywhere, on my own dime. So I pulled up stakes, got to work, and positioned myself to intercept a job in the world of outdoor media. Luck intervened and I found my dream job in my early 30s, producing fly fishing shows that would open my eyes to everything from bonefish to billfish. I quickly discovered that saltwater fly fishing wasn't near as easy as the brochures made it look. The fishing was usually challenging and outside of my skill set, but via my steelheading foundation, I had learned to enjoy the ride, focus on that which I could control, and understand that the fish have the final say in the matter of being caught or not. Most importantly, I now had a little black book and could share some of these incredible destinations with the man that instilled in me the value of these challenging pursuits. I had grand plans to take my dad to a number of destinations, but still didn't have the funds to do so. I'd managed to buy a house in Missoula, Montana in the good old days when a guy didn't need income or employment to etch his name on a title. 
Then my mortgage lender informed me that I could also borrow money from my own home. What a great idea. I immediately took out a princely sum, called my contact and booked a trip to Belize. Then I called my dad and coaxed him into joining me. Dad caught several bonefish on that trip and he was there to heckle me as I clumsily fought and landed my first tarpon. After a few days of fruitlessly casting a permit, he concluded that that whole business was rather silly. This from a steelhead fisherman who held no qualms about dragging his nine-year-old son out of bed to blind cast in the cold. The next order of business was to get my dad a billfish. I'd been to Puerto Quetzal and seen firsthand how rudimentary sail fishing on the fly could be. The captains there had the game dialed in and I'd met one, an expat, who offered trips within reach of the lower middle class. I assembled a small crew, reducing the cost even further, and then divided my personal expense in half by dragging a Yeti 110 for the captain to Guatemala with me. We caught sailfish as easily as cutthroat on a freestone in the Frank Church. I was already scheming our next adventure when fate slammed the door in our faces. The next five years were miserable for my family as my dad's mind slipped away and his body followed. He passed in 2020, the very day that COVID arrived in full force via Rudy Gobert. Without a ceremony to honor him, I went to remember him the best way that I knew how, by returning to his favorite piece of steelhead water on the lower Deschutes. The numbers of fish returning from the ocean had dwindled and congruently, the masses of urbanites that had taken up the sport of fly fishing during the heyday. The rivers were relatively quiet again, as they had been in my youth. Spay tackle had come a long way since my introduction to long belly lines in the early 2000s, and my clunky snap tees were now good enough for government work. To quote my dad, the casting alone was challenge enough to keep my attention. Armed with a single-handed rod, the way that my father fished, I loaded up my litany of water-loaded maneuvers and returned to the wheat farmer's holding. In a truck with a much smoother suspension than that of the old Suburban, we snaked along that same old switchback. Chuckers clucked in the foothills as we hiked the railroad tracks and divided the flywater between us. Rich, the landowner, graciously offered me the head of the run. As I worked line out of my reel, I glanced at the elk ivory ring, my father's ring, that now adorned my own annular finger. I sent my fly into boulder-strewn holding water that had given up so many steelhead for my dad over the decades. I hadn't hooked a steelhead in years, but there was an intelligible energy in the air, separate from the buzz of the overhead power lines. In the meat of the run, my line felt the edge of the heavy current, went taut, and began to pulse. Rich, fishing below me, reeled up and came to assist. This was one magnificent steelhead that required a memento, an image captured in time. I haven't been back to the Deschutes to steelhead fish since. To do so now would be anticlimactic. The right pieces need to be in place to formulate another powerful lasting memory in honor of my father. The only way I know how to do that is to return to the river with my own weary-eyed kids, his grandson and granddaughter, our oldest will be nine next year, and I may have already gaffed this one up. 
Believing that success was integral to a child developing a love for angling, I fear I may have made this all too easy. My kids have reeled in big trout from private ponds, bass and panfish from the dock of grandma's cabin in Wisconsin, and huge pike with the assistance of my ice fishing buddies. Where's the challenge in that? Perhaps my dad was onto something when he directed me into the abysses of Northeastern Oregon with an elk rifle, ran me up the Rimrock Bluffs with a shotgun chasing a Brittany, and left me on the bank to figure it out. Perhaps it was the difficulty that made it all interesting. And this philosophy was the greatest gift of all.